You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, in this episode, it's that time of year already. Spring training for your ears gets you back in shape with a slate of singers, composers, and directors to level up your listening and viewing. And then the listener mailbag with the latest from air quote official correspondent <laughs> PJ. We love you, man. Plus, in the two minute drill, you'll never guess which fan favorite Barry Kosky takes on next. And Munich wins the coin toss for the debut. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You're going to click follow on Apple Podcasts. You hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster, the OBS lapel pin, and I think I'm going to order some stickers pretty soon. Ooh. What do you think, Oliver? You want an OBS sticker? I, th- I think that's a decent, uh, yeah. <laughs> Oliver's not impressed. Faint I, praise. for one, would no. love a gold star at the end of every episode. That really is what keeps me going as an no. uh, entertainer. I think for the sake of, well, I mean, the beer coaster was one thing, but I think for the sake of people who make music, what might be nice is a pencil, but like a pencil, a mechanical pencil. I'm really into mechanical pencils with some branding on them. <laughs> those are pricey, man. Yeah, I know. Or those pens that have four different... Uh, colors you know you, it just can't be a standard pencil because as you sharpen it it will go from obs to just <laughs> BS, bs which is yeah. going to be no good for us <laughs> oliver indian wells what's happening well it just started today it's the uh master's series event in the you know the beginning of this tennis season uh and one of the first events of the year that has both men and women playing at the same time in the same place uh, just coming off of um, Daniel Medvedev's winning the tournament in Dubai, taking out Novak Djokovic along the way, and uh, Cameron Norrie winning in oh, no, um, Cameron Norrie went won somewhere I forgot. There was like three tournaments happening last week, and then there was one also that happened in Acapulco, which uh, Alex de Menar won, and they made him wear a sombrero for the um, award award ceremony, which I thought was embarrassing but whatever you're is, yeah. you're in mexico so when in mexico uh but novak Djokovic will not uh play indian wells even though he would clearly win it um because he did not uh get a vaccine mm. hey man i'll get you every time can't do no. it i feel like we're in the doldrums of sports right now so like nba playoffs have yet to begin NHL playoffs have yet to begin. It's just spring training down in Florida and Arizona. March Madness hasn't started yet. Sports kind of, there's high tides and there's low tides. And and we're in a low tide right now. The next low tide is going to be late July before the NFL really Well, gay sports is happening right now because we're in award season for uh, Hollywood. So, (laughs) and the Oscars are next week, so. And that's Weston oh, like, Williams. Everybody is. laughing if you didn't recognize it is. that. Yeah, voice, I know we so. don't. We know Weston. Yeah, you yeah. Know Weston. They, they Weston know you're going to get your voice heard. Oh, thank you. Let's talk some opera. Oh. Let's do some spring training for your ears. So we are in spring, and uh, or almost in spring, and we thought we would get ready for spring by 
you know, talking about some of the subjects that are uh, nearest and dearest to our hearts and uh, helping you uh, reach the amazing level of expertise that we hold here <laughs> on the OBS panel. <laughs> uh, if you want to be more like Weston or be more like George or be more like me, you're going to want to listen to these next uh, nine uh, opera artists, um, composers, singers, and uh, directors. Uh, l learn about them so that the next time you're in line waiting for your um, standing room only tickets at the Met, you can chat up the person in line with next to you and just show how smart you are. <laughs> That's really what it's all Obnoxious about. Obnoxious. <laughs> exactly. Become pretenders with us. You too can be a gatekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna kick it off with Weston. Yeah, I'll, I'll take I'll take the reins here. So um, basically, I was in charge of the composer segment, and uh, I was very very tempted to do three just kind of weird me composers, but I'm like, okay. Uh, how often are we going to hear La Grande Macabre uh, played? Uh, although maybe, maybe just a sneak preview of a later stick segment, more often than you might expect. But I was like, okay, what's something that might actually show up on your radar? So I was thinking that because of the conflict in Ukraine, it is possible that Russian operas might be kind of on the DL for a while. And one of my big sort of passions, aside from all the weird stuff that only I want to listen to, is Russian opera from the 19th century. So to tide you over while the war rages on and hopefully ends oh, sooner rather than later, I wanted to take three Russian operas, uh, Russian opera composers and compare them so you can distinguish the three. Because I feel like often it ends up being just a couple of representatives um, and people don't really think much about them beyond that. So uh, I'll start with uh, the most well-known and move to sort of to the least well-known. I'm going to start with uh, Tchaikovsky. Everyone knows Tchaikovsky. Move on to Mazorksky, which if you've listened to my Hall of Fame, you know very well. Um, and then Rimsky-Korsakov, because the, in my mind, those are the three giants of 19th century Russian opera. And if you've only heard one Russian opera, it's probably Eugene Onyegin, <laughs> uh, which is, in fairness, probably his best opera. Although I think a lot of his other operas like Iolanta and um, uh, Queen of Spades are kind of having a moment. But he actually wrote nine operas between 1869 and in 1892, uh, and he has, um, and I want to describe his style in a way that is uh, allows you to think about it a little bit more, because sometimes when you've only heard Eugene Onegin, you think, oh, this is Russian opera, but if you were to ask someone in the 19th century of Russia for a not insignificant portion of Tchaikovsky's career, you would have gotten the reaction, oh, this guy doesn't sound like Russian music at all which I think is very, very interesting. So in terms of his uh, writing, he is very, very well, uh, he, he is very, very directional in his writing compared to a lot of other Russian composers. He was educated with Western style musical techniques at the St. Petersburg Conservatory uh, in the first year that it was actually a, a thing, which is kind of cool because prior to that point, 
uh, Russian czars really just pulled in talent from, you know, uh, Western Europe mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they started to want to educate their own. So this was very much a Western style musical education. Tchaikovsky jumped back and forth between Western Europe and uh, Russia a few times. Um, and because of that, there is a lot in uh, his operas that feel very Western. It develops harmonically in a way that is very familiar, if you're familiar at all, with Western uh, 19th century opera. Uh, it also emphasizes a lot of the same things. He has a, it's all about uh, characters and relationships. Um, and there's not really a lot in the way of grand political statements. And, but there's not really any Wagnerian sort of uh, mythological caricatures, even in his more fantastical operas. Um, and uh, because Tchaikovsky was for ballet what Wagner was to opera without being as problematic, you will almost right. always hear a dance tune or two. Um, uh, but the second thing that you'll notice is that he incorporates a lot of what we might call Russian sounding uh, elements on a backbone that is still very Western European. Hmm. Um the uh, when when we're talking about the Russian sound, we're generally talking about the use of modes that we would not usually hear in the West. Um, some rhythms that are a little bit more uh, that are a little different. Um, but Tchaikovsky is still not. St he he will use those modes, but he won't stay harmonically in one place. He will still develop, um, and that's his main thing. Uh, his music is always very uh, meditative without being brooding. The melodies are really, really well written. They follow a logical, emotional flow that reminds me almost of like Verismo, but it's more introspective rather than sort of the shock and awe, blood and guts aspect of Verismo. Um, it's almost more Puccinian Verismo, if that's if that's a, a way to describe that. Man, that was I pretentious. Think, Go on. I, maybe a little bit. Uh, I think he's he's. Uh, He's got a really great sound, and I think a great example, not to pull from his most well-known opera here, but I think one of the best examples of the way that he will incorporate these Russian-sounding modes uh, and scales every so often, but still have a long, developing harmonic line that follows the thought process and emotional journey of a character is, of course, the letter-writing scene in Eugene Onegin. Um, so let's hear just a little bit of a recording. This is from uh, uh, Simon Butchkov, is the one who was uh, conducting. This is the Orchestra of Paris, uh, and uh, Nuccia Focile uh, is the soprano.
So as you can hear, it develops in a way that 19th century audiences would have been very comfortable with, but with those little bits of Russian flavor, of the little bit of folk music dipping in here and there to sort of supplement the sound. Um, and this is in great contrast to the next composer on my list, my boy, Modest Mazorsky. Uh, he only has one completed opera to his name technically, but there are two whole versions of it. And there's another opera that has a playable version, Kovanchina, uh, in addition to Boris Gudunov. And he has a bunch of other bits of abandoned operas that will show up in a number of contexts. But his influence on Russian music is incredibly important. Again, see my Hall of Fame for details. Uh, but how are we going to distinguish him? Uh, well, he's first of all, he's part of what was called the Mighty Handful, which is the five Russian composers who are trying to sort of invent and bring Russian uh, traditional Russian folk music and folk art into the uh, into the high art classical style. Um, but whereas Tchaikovsky was using like Russian flavor from time to time with a with a Western structure to his music, Mazorsky really leans into the Russian folk music. You're going to hear uh, non-Western uh, modes all over the place mm. and harmonic development is minimal there. Uh, and, and if you don't really know a lot about uh, about how what that means, um, my my go to example is that there are long, long passages in Mazorsky's uh, music where you can hum a single tone that's that feels like it's in a good key um, that starts where that starts the melody. And you can usually hum it for a very long time before there's any modulation that will bring that note into a clashing place. Uh, and that is part of the um, actually, if you look at like a traditional Russian instrument, the balalaika, it is tuned traditionally so that two strings are actually the same note. I believe it's an hmm. A. Um, and so that you can always have that pedal tone to go back to in traditional Russian folk music. So it's it stays in that same uh, sort of harmonic stasis. Um, he uses a lot of really angular rhythms and adventurous music, musical techniques that feel more at home in the 20th century than the 19th, which is partially due to his obsession with um, not just folk music, but the overtones uh, of the church bells in the Russian Orthodox Church that were ringing, which is really prominent in uh, especially Boris Gudunov in the coronation scene where he literally brings bells on stage. Um he had a reputation at the time as being kind of rough in his compositions and orchestrations. Uh, I have a fun quote I found from Tchaikovsky, in fact. Uh, he says, Mazorsky, you very rightly call a hopeless case. In talent, he is perhaps superior to all the other members of the Mighty Five, but his nature is narrow-minded, devoid of any urge towards self-perfection, blindly believing in the ridiculous theories of his circle and in his own genius. In addition, he has a certain base side to his nature which likes coarseness uncouthness and roughness ouch and that is a great way to describe the difference between him and Tchaikovsky. Um, his character, uh, characters declaim their emotions and they have deep but important psychological uh, struggles. Uh, Russian basses are everywhere in his music. You very rarely hear a lot of good writing for female voices. Um, uh, whereas Tchaikovsky is introspective, Mazorsky is brooding. 
Uh, all of his character struggles are very important and complex, and the text is paramount. The orchestrations can feel matter-of-fact or even blunt or clumsy, but the real smoking gun, if you're trying to identify Mazorsky, is the use of chorus. Even for operas that he didn't, never even came close to completing, uh, he tended to write choral numbers first, which I think is extremely, extremely interesting. So you'll have like a lot, you have, I think there's two or three operas that Mazorsky never got off the ground where the only music that you see is choral in nature. Um, so uh, to represent kind of what his sound is, let's hear a little bit of a chorus from Boris Gudinov. This is the uh, 1873 three version um this is at the, the scene at the end where um the peasantry is having a bad time with the uh local uh church and are you know rising up against the political power of the czar as well this is conducted by claudio abato with the uh, slovak philharmonic chorus bratislava and the radio choir berlin have something completely different from either of these two and probably the least uh, the least known in the west but his operas do make appearances here uh that is of course rimsky korsakov he was a fellow member of the mighty five and if you've heard mazorsky before you've probably actually heard rimsky korsakov because uh rimsky was known for uh, correcting the matter-of-fact blunt orchestration that I mentioned earlier in Mazorsky's work. So, like, for example, uh, if you ever have heard Night on Bald Mountain, you almost certainly have heard Classic. a version that is based on a Rimsky-Korsakov's version, which is completely different from Mazorsky's original, uh, which I think is very, very interesting. Uh, Rimsky-Korsakov had the best, best musical ed education of the five, and he felt responsible for keeping these amateurs in check his orchestrations are really really good um tchaikovsky was also a great orchestrator but he emphasized a lot of the 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 sort of the the the, the string session section especially has a lot of depth um 
and uh, but Rimsky-Korsakov likes shimmering, exotic textures that go beyond the string section into into the percussion section, into the uh, the horn section. Uh, there's a smoothness and shimmering, almost magical quality to the way he uses the orchestra. He uses a lot of subtlety in how he puts the strings together and the brass to, uh, and even in operas where he's not, he doesn't do like a magical subject. It feels like something a little magical, a little exotic is going on. Uh, unlike Tchaikovsky's flesh and blood relationships or Mazorsky's blunt political monologuing, Rimsky-Korsakov loves exoticism. Uh, and this was uh, very apparent because at the time, Russia's identity was, Russia was an empire. You know, you have a lot of different cultures from the Far East, uh, of course, the, the, the European influence from the West, Northern indigenous uh, uh, folks up there. Um, there's a lot of musical things to draw from, and Rimsky-Korsakov really, really leaned into that. Um, uh, because of that, a lot of Rimsky-Korsakov's operas were were very uh, inspired by folk tales, especially magical folk tales. Um, my favorite is one of his final operas, might be his final opera actually, um, is The Invisible City of Kitej, uh, which is, I mean, it, you can tell in the title, it's going to be based on a folk tale because there's no such thing as an invisible city. Hate to be the one to break that to you. Um, and he really likes to bring out the parts of Russian music that have the least European influence. So when you listen to this, you can hear the sort of folk music influence that you heard in Tchaikovsky and Mazorsky. But it's all about the sound of the wild nature around civilization and is not concerned at all with the civilization in it. This is from the beginning of the of Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov's Invisible City of Kitej. Uh, this is the uh, aria Ah, Dear Forest Deep, sung by the character Fevroina, uh, Fevronia, excuse me. Uh, and the singer is Galina Gorchakova uh, with, unfortunately, Valery Gergiev. <laughs>
That was, of course, conducted by everyone's least favorite Milan <laughs> restaurateur. Uh, but we can ignore that uh, because that is, uh, unfortunately, one of the better recordings of that piece. Weston, the irony, of course, is that the only place we're going to get to hear these folks is in your living room because no one's going to produce them. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Soon, right? I, I would love to have... Uh, have alternative versions to Gergiev with a lot of these Russian operas. I'll, the reference recording to go to is almost always Gergiev with a lot of these sorts of things. My thing is like stick it to Putin, start putting on these operas in these uh, in productions that that explicitly uh, go against oh, the war. Okay. Like Bring me saying. something uh, that Gergiev uh, hasn't gotten his grubby little hands all over. I, like I would love saying. to hear it. I yeah, like what you're saying. That's a lot of Russia, Weston. I'm going to mix it up a little bit. I'm going to go Greece, England, and Germany. Here's three Ooh. directors that I want you to keep an eye out for this coming season. I don't have any sound clips, of course. I will put a production photo from uh, a production of each of them on our website, operaboxscore.com. The first director I want you to look out for this season is the Greek-English director Rodula Gaitanu. She trained as part of the program at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden. Her most recent work in America was a production of Carmen, which she did at Opera Theater of St. Louis last summer, 2022. And this coming summer at Spoleto, she is directing a production of Samuel Barber's Vanessa. Lots of other events and engagements for her around Europe in the interim. In my opinion, she is one of the most outspoken feminist directors working in opera today. Her productions absolutely relish and realize that. Her Carmen at Opera Theater of St. Louis was very clearly proudly feminist, which I find fascinating. It's just as it should be. And she makes no apologies for that, despite what some critics take issue with. Yeah. Fantastic visuals. Typically, her work is updated in terms of time and place. The Carmen at OTSL was reset in a 1950s Franco Spain. But you're going to know one of her productions by the centering of women and feminism. In, in the way that other directors like uh, Marianne Clement or Lydia Steyer would also do, Rodula Gaetanu uh, does that and then some. Secondly, a director to keep it out for this year, Richard Jones. You've heard the name before, most recently here in Chicago, uh, directing Hansel and Gretel. Also, Ario Dante, which I believe was last season at Lyric or maybe two seasons ago. The key word here, if the key word for Gaetano is feminism, the key word for Richard Jones is quirk. He is a quirky, quirky man, and he has a quirky, <laughs> surrealist vision for what the world is. He has a Rheingold, which is at English National Opera at the moment. I believe that is a, a remount. He's done a lot of standard repertoire. Some of the uh, handle, of course, I mentioned before. I even think all the way back to, I think it was 2013, when he directed at Covent Garden this opera called Anna Nicole, which uh, yes. was by the same team that did Jerry Springer, the opera. And then this yep. was an opera about Anna Nicole Smith. It just speaks to his purely surrealist and quirky way that he looks at the world. And it's 
utterly unforgettable when you see one of Richard Jones's productions. Lastly, this director, the German Michael Tallheimer. Now, he is as much of a theater director as he is an opera director. I don't know if his work has ever been done in the U.S. You're going to have to travel for him. He just closed a production of Parsifal in Geneva and a Flying Dutchman in Hamburg. I remember Michael Tallheimer's work most clearly in his 2016 production of The Abduction from the Seraglio, which was at the Staatsoper in Berlin. And it really introduced me to, here's the key word, minimalism in opera. It's been done before. It will be done again. This production of Abduction of, of the Seraglio with Lawrence Brownlee as Belmonte, I believe had one single prop in it. I think there was a bottle of champagne for the uh, number that Osmin does, Vivit Bacchus. The stage was completely bare with a single second level, a, a, just a platform that extended into the wings. This So it looked like this floating platform. And then a single bottle of champagne. Now look, when you have a fantastic orchestra like they do in Berlin, when you have fantastic singers, you can hang everything on the artistry of those singers. But this aesthetic for Tallheimer follows him wherever he goes. He's he's sort of like Ivo Van Hova or Jamie Lloyd in that way that is just so simple, so clear, and so concise. My hope is that his work makes it to the U.S. at some point. If not, you're going to have to travel for it. And images of some of these uh, directors' work will be available for you to see at Opera Box Score. We don't talk about the website quite enough, Um, but we're moving on now to a trio of male sopranos. So around this time last year, maybe it was the summer, there was a big uh, hullabaloo media media blitz around a uh, Venezuelan male soprano or or a high countertenor or sopranista, however you want to call them. Uh, Samuel Mourinho, Mar- Samuel Marino, and uh, Samuel Marino uh, of the three singers we're going to talk about today has the most prestigious recording contract. He has a recording contract with Decca, which I think mm. was the reason behind all of the PR around this album. He was interviewed on NPR. He was got a big spread in the New York Times art section. Um, there's all of this stuff about he's the first two, he's the most gender fluid, you know, he likes to mm-hmm. play with gender presentation, he wears dresses at his concerts. Um, this album, Sopranista, he sings Voike Sapete, which I say big deal. Right. Um, it <laughs> only goes up to an F. Um, he sings the long aria for Sesto de Perquesto. He sings some other things. Um, I actually like his first album better. He sings Handel and Gluck uh, with uh, La with a different orchestra than he sings with sings mm-hmm. on uh, for his album Sopranista on Decca, which is his new album. And I like the album better. I think the uh, album is more centered on Baroque music, which I think should still be the center of his repertoire. But he is suggesting already in his interviews and in some videos you can find that he wants to sing real soprano roles that a man would never sing, such as Lucia de Lammermoor. And Rosalka. And I don't think he can. Uh, you can go out there and listen to him singing. Uh, M- not... Musically. You don't think he can do it musically yet. 
Correct. Okay. Uh, yeah. There, there are videos of him singing non. 18th century repertoire out there. I don't want to play them here because that's not what we do. But I will play <laughs> a little bit of him singing um, the finale or the conclusion of Esultata Jubilate, the Mozart motet, the famous Alleluia, which was written for a castrato, but nowadays is mostly sung by coloratura sopranos. Let's hear a little bit of Alleluia. Samuel Mourinho, 30 years old, Venezuelan, and very, very flamboyant. Uh, there is some video out there of him singing soprano arias in a white dress and spinning while he sings all the coloratura and whatnot. And it's very um, entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, good luck to him. I, I think that uh, he has a lot of people that are, you know, cheering for him and one wanting to make him the it boy or it uh gender non-conforming singer <laughs> go uh, on of opera right now yeah <laughs> uh i think a singer who is very similar um bruno de sa brazilian 33 years old um is a little bit more musical and is staying within his wheelhouse uh, and uh, his, his repertoire is focused on 18th century music and um, just has a little bit more of what I would like to say is uh, performance practice in his interpretations of this 18th century music. He also has a flashy uh, rec recording contract with uh, Warner slash Arado and uh, his album is called Roma Travestita with uh, Il Pomodoro, one of my favorite period bands. We're about to listen to a bit of him singing an aria from Scarlatti's Griselda. But if you look at Sam, I mean, if you look at Bruno de Sa's um, upcoming engagements, he actually is going to be singing at uh, Opera Normandy uh, the role of Stefano in Gounod's Romeo and Juliet. So that's a hmm. real, that's a real mezzo soprano role. Yeah. I don't know, ex I don't know exactly how big of a house Opera de Rouen in Normandy is, um, but. Uh, you know, that is with the full orchestra, so you can't hide behind, you know, um, the Baroque orchestras, which are natural. I mean, and Baroque music in general is naturally written to put the focus on the voice. Uh, Gounod didn't care so much. <laughs> so I'd be interesting to see how, how he does, what the reviews are going to be like. That's coming up this summer for him. But let's hear a little bit of Scarlatti sung by the Brazilian male soprano Bruno de Sá.
coincidentally, Bruno de Sa was part of this production at Bayreuth Baroque this year, or I should say last year, uh, an opera called, um, uh, what's it called? Alessandro nel Indie by Leonardo Vinci, which is uh, pro- which was produced by Parnassus Arts Productions, which if you're a careful listener of Opera Box Score, you'll remember that friend of the show, Nicholas Tamanya is also part of Parnassus which is Max Chenchich's uh, organization. Max Chenchich, the countertenor, uh, started uh, a management company called Parnassus, which also has a musicology wing and uh, produces, you know, world premieres or, you know, modern day premieres of forgotten operas with his artists. It's a great kind of uh, operation they got going there uh, to, you know, represent their artists and also to produce you know, shows uh, using those artists. And uh, yeah, they put this show on at Bayreuth, Bayreuth's Baroque last year, uh, and it received rave reviews. It starred five countertenors, including Bruna de Sa in, uh, as a female character. The title character of Alessandra was sung by the Israeli male soprano or sopraniste Mayan Licht. I don't know how you say his first name. It's M-A-A-Y-A-N. Anybody who speaks Israeli or Hebrew, I should say, help me out with that. But it's Ma'ayan, maybe? Ma'ayan Licht. Um, to me, splits the difference between uh, Samuel Mourinho and Bruno de Sa. I would like to say that Bruno de Sa uh, has a dignified, you know, very uh, well-formed presentation of the music he sings. Whereas Samuel Mourinho is, to me, to me pure camp. I think Maya Licht <laughs> um, splits splits the difference, and you have beautiful, um, stylish singing, but a lot of flamboyance at the same time. Uh, I'll encourage you to go to YouTube and look up his performance, just with harpsichord, of uh, a Vivaldi aria called uh, Zephyretti something. I forget what it is, but it's an aria that starts with Zephy- the word Zephyretti, where he shows off his trill with a, a soft trill, just with harpsichord. And uh, it, to me, it's very seductive and it's very beautiful. Uh, but here he is singing uh, a very pompous uh, kind of conclusion with cadenza of an aria from this show that they did at Bayreuth. The show is called um, Alessandro Nelindie and it's by Leonardo Vinci. This is Ma'ayan Licht. <laughs> Sopranos who are all about the same age. I don't know how old Ma'ayan Licht is. I couldn't find that information anywhere. Uh, Samuel Mourinho, the one we will all hear about forever because Decca wants us to. Uh, and Decca, I guess, is big brother in opera. Uh, his his <laughs> album is called Sopranista with La Cetra Baroque Orchestra. Then there's Bruno de Sa, uh, Brazilian, 
his album is called Roma Travestita with Il Pomodoro. And Bruno de Sa to me is the most baroque of them all. And Mayan Licht uh, is right in the middle uh, and an artist I definitely am watching. And I cannot wait till somebody signs him to a recording contract. We know that he's working with Max Chenchich on Parnassus. Uh, there are no commercial recordings right now, but follow him on social media. You will not regret it. Three singers to keep your ears open for, three composers that may or may not make it onto a stage this year, and three directors also to keep your eyes out for. If you come across any of them, let us know what you thought. Super simple to get in touch with us. Send us that voice memo or that hot take, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Yeah, you got something to say? Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is Listener Mailbag. Hey, Opera Box Score, this is PJ Ewing. I'm here at the Merkin Concert Hall. I'm here with Donald Levine. You've heard from Donald before. We're seeing something new. This is a New York premiere. It's a North American premiere of an opera. It's in two acts. It's called Furiosus. It's in Italian. Kaufman Music Center, Merkin Hall. The music is by Roberto Scaracella Perino. Donald? I had not a clue what to expect. Uh, I am enjoying it. The singers are wonderful. The orchestra is a small little group, about eight or ten players with a piano. And uh, the music is tuneful. It's jaunty. It's, uh, I like it. It's uh, Shades of Asta Piazzolla and uh, Nino Rota. Those are really good comparisons. It reminded me of a Italian countryside music. Say, Donald, what about the singing? I like the uh, Angelica slash Fiordeligi, Amani Cole Felder, who I must say was one of our winners at our Giulio Gari competition in 2018. She's also in the uh, Lindemann program, the Young Artist program at the Metropolitan Opera. The Medora in Alcina is uh, Sierra Bird, very fine mezzo-soprano. I think she's in the Lindemann program, too. And a wonderful uh, mezzo-soprano, Sifocasi Molten Molteno, is a Bradamante. Anyway, it's a wonderful performance so far. And it's always nice to hear something new that you had I, no preconceptions what it was going to be like. I didn't know what to expect. But uh, we're thoroughly enjoying it. Thoroughly enjoying this. It's always fun to report to you at Opera Box Score. Such a pleasure. Carry on, friends. Oh, PJ and Donald. Uh, that's That was a really sweet. It actually makes me curious about this thing. When they were talking about it, I was thinking, are you, are you sure you're not seeing, seeing like Alcina? <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's, it's clearly uh, using the same source material as Alcina has similar characters. Um, Bradamante, Ruggiero, but you know, that, uh, Metastasio stuff, uh, I think it's Metastasio, uh, has, is it Metastasio? Uh, who wrote? No, it's, it's Ariosto. It's Ariosto. Yeah. That text gets, you know, cut up a lot and has become many different operas, yes, including true. an opera by a woman, uh, Francesca Caccini, which mm -hmm. will, um, be performed by Chicago's very own Haymarket Opera coming up oh yeah i'm excited uh, about that one. season but uh no uh, robert sweeten was the conductor i feel like we've said his name before on this show maybe he is related to santa fe opera i don't know if he might be like their music person at santa fe uh but yeah interesting to see uh, how lindemann artists uh, are allowed to 
do outside gigs. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I really love hearing from PJ, obviously. He's basically our official correspondent at this point. Um, and I think it really is nice to have a, a leg in sort of the New York scene. Uh, but I want to kind of ask our listeners who are not in one of these huge cities with the big opera scenes to maybe uh, send us, you know, uh, a, what what are you listening to? What operas are happening in your town? You know, I, I come from Alabama, which is not the same as Chicago or New York in terms of opera. But uh, there's there's still cool stuff happening all over the place. So uh, let us know. Operaboxscore at gmail.com is where you can send an audio clip or just a little description that one of us can read. I'd love to hear what uh, what your t- uh, local town is doing opera-wise. Thanks, everybody. Let us know. Get that merch. Two-minute drill. You're going to get it right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week. General Director Serge Dorney has announced the 23-24 season for the Bavarian State Opera, which includes old favorites like The Marriage of Figaro, eight new productions including Barry Kosky's Deflator Mouse, Anya Harteros and Jonas Kaufmann in Tosca, Mirga Grazinite Tila leading Peleas and Melisande, and Weston's favorite bedtime background soundtrack, Le Grand Macabre by Ligeti. It's very calming. For the first time, Germany's Oper Awards were hosted outside Berlin in a ceremony held at Theater Dortmund to celebrate that company's award for Germany's Best Opera House. The four-hour ceremony consisted of 19 awards, way too long to cover in a two-minute drill. We'll cover that right after this. Anna Netrebko's manager, Miguel Esteban, is taking on Ukrainian Minister of Culture Oleksandr Tkachenk after he uh, he called the soprano part of the Putin system. In a piece for Die Welt, Esteban argued that the minister provides no evidence for his claim about Anna Netrebko. It seems reasonable to assume that this and other actions are only intended to exploit Netrebko's notoriety in order to gain media attention for their own cause. <laughs> sure, Jan. Friend of the show, Lawrence Brownlee, has announced Rising, a project that will commission new works by six African-American composers, including Damien Sneed and Sean Opabolo. The past years have been a trial. It's themes of uplift, elevation, and rebirth that we've tried to focus on with this new project, Brownlee said, taking poems from the giants of the Harlem Renaissance to create something that speaks not just to our struggles, but to our triumphs. Soprano Angel Blue will receive the 2023 Warden Arts Lifetime Achievement Award, she's still very young people, for her contributions to the performing (laughs) arts. Said Blue, I am so honored to be recognized by an organization I admire for their work and creative mission of offering accessible, high-quality performing arts education that sparks personal growth and builds stronger communities. Bass baritone Bryn Terfel, along with the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, is launching CONFRA, which means fund or possibly reservoir in Welsh, to support young artists at the college. Quote, at the start of their careers, young artists dream of achieving great things, just as young sportsmen and women do, said Terfel. How do you say sports ball in Welsh? Uh, rugby? In trade news, <laughs> Juan Diego Flores' contract as artistic director of Pizarro's Rossini Opera Festival has been extended until 2026. He said, quote, I'm honored to occupy this prestigious position of the festival where I was born artistically, and I will work to maintain excellence in future programming. 
on-site opera co-founder and artistic director and friend of the show, Eric Einhorn, will leave the company by the end of the year. He says, quote, I am eager to discover what new experiences might await me while continuing my service to on-site opera as a member of the board of directors. A March 6th post on the new forum for classical singers warns members against Teatro Lirico d'Europa. According to the post, with screenshots of correspondence on Facebook Messenger, the wife of the company's artistic director broke a contract and refused to follow through on promises of compensation. Quote, we singers need to stand up for this kind of unfair business practice, harassment, and bullying. The way she treated me is simply not acceptable, and I decided that people should know about it. On the disabled list? The Metropolitan Opera has announced that Isabel Leonard has withdrawn from the upcoming production of Der Rosenkavalier. Samantha Hankey will take over the role of Octavian. No reason was provided for Leonard's withdrawal. Exit stage right, arts administrator Nicholas Snowman, who died at 78, Beginning his career running the South Bank Center in 1986 in London, he was a co-founder of the London Sinfonietta and general manager at Glyndebourne, and lastly led the Opera Nationale du Rhin until 2009. Three premieres and so many birthdays on this day, March 6th, <laughs> beginning with Bellini's La Sonambula in Milan in 1831, Verdi's La Traviata in Venice at La Fenice in 1853, and Paul Ruder's The Handmaid's Tale in Copenhagen in the year 2000. And the birthdays are Fernand Anso, the Belgian tenor in 1890, Gina Cigna, the French-Italian dramatic soprano born in Paris in 1900, Conductor Julius Rudel, born in Vienna in 1921. Conductor Sarah Caldwell, born in somewhere in America in 1924. Bass baritone Norman Triegel, born in New Orleans in 1927. Lauren Mazel, born this day in 1930. And Dame Kiri Takanawa, <laughs> born this day, March 6th in 19... <laughs> <laughs> that is your two-minute drill. So many operas and artists to recognize on this day. I thought we would go a little bit old school and hear Fernand Anso singing Au Nature Plein de Grâce, recorded, I guess, on wax in 1927 or very it, old. It, it would be shellac in 1927. Yeah. Um, I have to say, if you listen to opera box, an opera box, if you listen to opera now, there was a time when I listened to all the old recordings and tried to suss them out and tell you why oh you should listen goodness. to them. Fernand Ansau, I forget why you should listen to him, but uh, from that example, uh, the phrasing of French Romantic music, which we no longer have, I would call that mm. very stylistically French Romantic um, because he, you know, he was born in uh, 1890. So he comes from that line of, you know, artists who worked with Massenet 
Um, mm. There is something about the porta- use of portamento. We I used to call them minardis because they're not fully vibratoous portamenti. They have more of a straight tone. Uh, you know, use of the of the legato uh, between the notes, and it's very to me. It's very French. It allows you to stay on the vowel, and um, you don't hear people singing like that anymore. So anyway, an artifact. From 1927. Oliver, I was, I was going to say the the segment on how to be a pretentious opera listener we already finished, <laughs> but okay, I appreciate what it. What a crazy day, though! It was a great day for conductors: Rudel, Caldwell, Lazelle, and then Sonambula, Traviata, Handmaid's Tale. I don't know why this opera isn't more in the repertoire. It's such it's a too great story. Real. I, it's too <laughs> yeah. real. I think I think the cast is too big. I don't I don't think the music is terribly difficult. I think the music is is accessible and I almost wonder if like there's over like copyright 20, issues with the show, you know? Maybe, but it's like over 20 years since the premiere and it's just not being done with any kind of regularity. So when European opera houses do their season announcements, it's like draft day in the NFL. <laughs> it's it's like when you it's a circus. I mean it is crazy. Just looking at the photos from um Serge Denis at the Bayerische Staatsoper, I mean I just I'm so overwhelmed by the hype of the whole thing. And that's oh, before yeah. we actually get to the shows that are happening. I mean La Grand Macabre is just, you know, it annoys me that you basically have to go to Europe to see it. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think that uh, the bio, uh, Bavarian state opera is just a, you know, it, it's always been a gold mine of like the good stuff happening uh, in that part of the world in opera. Uh, we've in like, as much as I'm going to hype uh, La Grand Macabre, they also have, you know, Flatermouse. They also have- uh, In the new you know, production by Barry Kosky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we also have a little bit of Tchaikovsky, just a little link where they're doing uh, Queen of Spades, which is delightful. Um, we have uh, uh, The Passenger, which is yes. the, the Weinberg opera, which is, which is yeah. devas- devastating. That's Absolutely devastating really hard piece. Show. That's yeah. being directed um, by Tobias Kratzer as well. That's going to be crazy and good. Yeah. it's uh, And uh, also bringing in some Pelias and Melaison with uh, Debussy. Um, the aforementioned Grand Macabre, which is just a, um, I don't know if you've like sat down and like listened to Le Grand Macabre. I, I could probably just end the sentence there, but I don't know if you sat <laughs> down and like followed along with the libretto. The the stage directions for that thing are bonkers. Uh, I I mean, it's just a a delightful piece. Um, there's there's also a Figaro in there. There's a, co- a cozy, I believe, you know, for a, a, all of you. Uh, more basic folks out there who are not me. I don't see a cozy. I think it's just Figaro. Uh, oh, is it? Oh, I, oh yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. I misread the, uh, the. I'm using the uh, press release that has been Google translated from German. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm uh, doing my best here. But there's a, a. It's one of those things. I mean, Bavarian State Opera has been doing some of the best. Uh, work for the past. It would, it would be fun to point out all the friends of the show. Uh, Charles yeah. Krasinova is in one of the casts of the Tosca. Uh, Emily Pogoreltz uh, will be singing in Ida Mineo. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I found for now. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it. Well, uh, do you want to move on to the Oprah Awards? Oh, yeah. Okay. This so is... wait, wait, just, just this is going to take us a moment. We're going to let... Um, Weston reset his computer screen. Oh, uh, I've for... got it. It's, it's already. Yeah, it I, was, okay. I was ready. All right. Uh, 
the Oprah Awards, all, always a big one. I mean, I always kind of make fun of the Grammys because um, I'm always just kind of waiting for the Oprah Awards to come out. Uh, four hours. Four hours. It's like it's the length of the Grammys, but just for operas. It's great. It's the length of Die Meistersinger. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which did not make it on the list as far as I know. I'm going to run through just real quick a lot of the highlights, and then we can make you talk about a few if we feel so inclined. Mm. Best Opera House, Opera Dortmund, which took over for the first times of, uh, for hosting, um, which is which is pretty neat. Best Female Singer, we've got Lizette Oropesa, who Yay. is obviously having a moment. Uh, best Male Singer, Michael Fola. Uh, we have Best Conductor is uh, Giandrea Nozeda. Uh, and the best director is Klaus Gut, which I'm sure George has many opinions about. Yeah, I've seen his uh, stuff. I love it. <laughs> thank you, George. Uh, best orchestra is interestingly uh, the Berlin Philharmonic, not an because opera of tar. orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's because of uh, uh, Queen of Spades specifically, uh, which is another Tchaikovsky correction. Uh, connection. Uh, the best choir, Slovak Philharmonic, uh, which I believe I actually featured earlier in my segment as well. So I'm really batting a hundred. Um, best world premiere. This is interesting. This is Eurydice, uh, uh, but not the Eur- uh, Matthew O'Coyne Eurydice. This is Eurydice die Liebenden Blind, uh, no. which is by Liebenden uh, Liebenden. Excuse me, uh, which is yeah. by um, Manfred uh, Trojan. And I know nothing and that, about that it. That premiered at Opera Amsterdam. Yeah, uh, I know nothing about it. Would love to know about it. Um, best performance: uh, The Devils of Loudon uh, at the Bayerische uh, Staatsoper. Um, love that piece. Um, best stage designer is Ulrich Rasche, uh, and they won for Elektra. The best costume designer. Uh, Erzan Montag and Annika Lu uh, for Antichrist, which is the Ruhr Langard opera, which I also delight delight in. See, it's this is why I love dive, the Oprah dude. Awards. This is all stuff like <laughs> that I'm listening to, just jiving okay, with. But it's costumes, so you didn't listen to the costumes. Okay, yeah, go, sorry, on. I didn't, go on. I heard them rustling in the background. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, let's get to the recordings here. The best solo album is Jonathan Tatelman's uh, Arias, which is not one I've heard. Did, yeah, you, did you hear it, that one? I have one? it on my desk. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> uh, it's a the best opera recording, this was interesting, and I, th- I think I agree with this, uh, is Robert Le Diable uh, with, um, oh gosh, I need to Paul scroll down. The, the, it's Aaron Morley and yeah. um, John Osborne are the two principals in that. And that's like a five-hour French romantic Meyer Bear, yeah. you know, Bel Canto Spectacular. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a real heavy show. hitter. <laughs> yeah, but I just want to say that, like, you know, the Grammys... You know, uh, our version of the Oper, well, not even, but um, they're not considering all of the opera recordings anymore. Now they're just considering all these Met HD things, which are now winning. Yeah. And um, it's a shame that a recording like Roberto Diablo wasn't considered for uh, a Grammy Award. Yeah, because there there are still really good recording only being made, you know. Um, but uh, I've had that rant before, so we can uh, we can keep moving. I think we can uh, stop there. I'll just say that um, Renee Jacob received the Lifetime Achievement Award, just like mm-hmm. Angel Angel Blue did. <laughs> the only other things to add is is one thing that's visible and one thing which isn't. First of all, there's there's a bit of tongue in cheekness, I think, to the Oprah Awards, and so they do give a prize for the biggest nuisance in opera, which mm. in this year was the 
sort of how do you how do you translate theater four plots the the, the, like, the four court it says yeah kind of the the four court in in Kleifeld, which is a dreadful town um but apparently <laughs> apparently it's, there, it's, go, there it's, go all of our listeners in for in, in Kleifeld. <laughs> apparently, Kleifeld, yeah. apparently the the four court is where all the drug dealers hang mm. out in Kleifeld, and so uh everybody hates that the other thing that i thought was missing was <laughs> that they give a prize for best equal opportunities project and that was not given this year and i just made me question could it's an admonishment I, everybody I forgot so. to do that i guess so it's like hey you got to 2020 is over we forgot <laughs> must, must try hard must try hard so um we do not necessarily uh represent the new forum for classical singers but we thought that we should amplify this warning in the event that Teatro Lyrico de Europa really is like pulling fast ones on people and not honoring contracts. I uh, will say this is all alleged, you know, we don't know yeah. the facts of the case, but it is picking up some some heat on that forum right now. Yeah, but nobody, I mean, the original poster has nothing to gain from throwing this company under the bus. Um, so just this information is out there. If you're a singer, you know where to look for the new forum. Um, and for those of you who are considering singing with Teatro Lirico de Europa, uh, just, you know, do some research. Out. Yeah. Anything else, guys, before we wrap this show up? Well, it's interesting that Eric Einhorn is leaving the company that he started um, or co-started. Um, and, you know, we I recently touched base with Eric while he was here in Chicago as the revival director for... Uh, the Hansel and Gretel by Richard uh, Jones. It all comes full circle, yeah. Oliver. <laughs> I want. I wonder yeah. if being a guest on um, Opera Box Score just you know I did it. Like I reached the peak of my career. Yeah, that, that was like, what he was going for. That yeah, his entire so career led up to that. Yeah. So yeah, enjoy retirement. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Time to wrap up the show for this week. We'll start with Oliver Camacho. Well, Carmen is uh, beginning soon in Chicago, uh, and it stars Janae Bridges and friend of the show, Charles Castronovo, and um, friend of my other show, Golda Schultz. I, <laughs> I, I interviewed Golda Schultz uh, for my other job, and she is um, she's a wild one. <laughs> uh, okay. she's, the first, she's the first person I've ever interviewed where I was like, I cannot use that. There's no, I can't, I can't use that. Like, I cannot <laughs> use that. Like she just like said all these things. Like I, I can't use that. You know, uh, luckily though I had enough content where I, you know, completed the show, but um, she's, I mean, she's very entertaining, but uh, I just, I want to now talk to um, the producers at the Met who do those backstage interviews with artists as they're coming off stage for like HD. I'd like to just say what, see what they have to think about. <laughs> about Golda and like what it's like to like wrangle her and like okay wait wait you can't say that on the air <laughs> she's a delight and she's very very trenchant and clever and I'm not uh, this so is nothing to do with her call? no I just wanted to say I just wanted to say that she's in uh, Carmen coming up my good call is that the weather in maybe wherever you are is like in Chicago where it's like it's suggesting spring it's just like it's so close right. we're getting so close <laughs> um and just yesterday, as I was sitting at my desk, uh, plugging away, I was like, I need to listen to something that makes me feel springy. And uh, my solution was uh, Purcell's King Arthur. Mm -hmm. And I auditioned the newish, newish recording by Vox Luminous uh, of King Arthur, which I enjoyed very much. And if you'd like to 
check it out. I recommend skipping right ahead to the cold genius scene. The uh, 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 the best uh, part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's so delightful. It's really, really delightful. So my good call is listen to the cold genius scene of King Arthur. Weston Williams. <laughs> I have a bad call. He's hmm. back in the U.S., folks. That's right. Plus Tobias, the, right? The Ming- <laughs> no, no. Uh, Tobias has been here the whole time. He's oh. in the walls. Uh, but Placido Domingo, unfortunately, for the first time since he was rightfully banished from our, our shores, will be coming back for a recital in Palm Beach, Florida. And, you know, the, uh, I, I will say... Uh, no hate to our Florida listeners, but, you know, of course it's Florida that Placido Domingo is coming back to. Uh, that's my bad call. I don't think we need to give him any more airtime. <laughs> and that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at the website operaboxscore.com and of course that's where you can put your money where our mouths are give back to the OBS on the donate page your announcers Norm Waddell your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho your audio editors Weston Williams and I'm your George Cedarquist asking you to continue (laughs) the conversation about opera as you reach the age where you start receiving lifetime achievement awards what is that mid-20s we're back with an all-new show next week plus you get more opera headlines more hot takes and more sopranista cronfa join us